Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast, equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve Him faithfully. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Living Leadership Podcast. Starting this week and continuing on the next two episodes, we will be sharing with you three talks from 2016's Pastoral Refreshment Conference. Pastoral Refreshment Conferences are three-day mini-breaks for leaders and their spouses where you can come away and receive encouragement from the Bible, opportunities to meet other leaders and spouses, and receive prayer and encouragement from members of our team. They are wonderful occasions, often called an oasis for the soul, and we'd really love to invite you along to the next ones, which are happening at the end of January in Hertfordshire and in early February in the Lake District. You can find out more about these and book yourself a place by visiting our website, www.livingleadership.org forward slash PRC for the Pastoral Refreshment Conference. Well, that's enough from me. Here's today's message. Good afternoon. Well, I hope you had a good journey. And I hope you had a, have a better journey home than the man who went to the conference. And uh, it was in Manchester. And uh, they all got on the train very excitedly, making their way back home after a wonderful conference. And um, the guard came through to collect the tickets and all of the other friends with him had their tickets. Could he find his ticket? Um, so as happens, it's happened to me. The guy says, well, I'll come back. So he went up the train and came back down and stood by the guy and said, I'm really sorry. Uh, I just can't find my ticket. So the guard looked at him, looked at his friends. He says, you look like an honest man. This time, it's never happened to me. This time, I'll let you off. So he felt wonderful, a great conference and a kind guard. When he gets home, he can't wait to tell his wife. So she stood there and listened patiently to the blessings of the conference and the blessings of the kind guard. And then she looked at him and said, so where's the car? <laughs> so, uh, so whether you're traveling by train or road, I hope you have a good journey. <laughs> I was seeking a very quiet uh, January in preparation for this conference. Uh, Marcus, months ago, asked me, what theme would you like? And I said, I'd like to take Jesus the pastor. Um, but instead of a quiet January in the study, I, I feel my material has been shaped by both scripture and pastoral experiences. The woman church leader who, in a group I was in, said, I didn't realize Christians could be so ferocious. It's hard to minister to people when they make you feel so unwelcome. The pastor in the same group who had to endure a six-page letter which had been sent to the leadership rubbish in his ministry. The 37-year-old church leader whose younger sister had died just three or four months before we met, and it's likely that the hospital staff were negligent. Within the past month, pastoring a very dear friend of ours whose husband walked out on the family. The church leader, who I mentor, who's handling the aftermath of justly disciplining some members for critical spirit. But the aftermath, the wave of protest from sympathizers who don't know the half, 
They only see the pain and they're taking the, the side of the member who's being disciplined. The pastor, riddled with guilt because of his addictions. I'm a rubbish pastor. I'm a rubbish husband. I'm a rubbish parent. The church leader, so involved with the church building scheme, they're almost like a clerk of work. So it means the, the preparation of the word. Everything's done in a rush and he's just reading on books, reading books and passing on knowledge. And he says, I know that I'm not giving life-giving food for the people. And then just last week, a very dear friend of mine, uh, we have coffee from time to time and the burden he has, young pastor in his 30s for his little five-year-old. Uh, there's a mystery illness that is just affecting her growth and they thought it would all be solved two weeks ago with a visit to the hospital, but they're calling for more tests and higher specialists, and you can imagine the anxiety. So add to that, as Marcus hinted, your story. And I want to emphasize we're here to be refreshed by Jesus the pastor. I, uh, a number of years ago, I found it intriguing just to ponder on that title, Jesus the, the Pastor. The word pastor comes from the, the Latin, and it really means shepherd. It's linked very closely with leading into pasture. Uh, and so you know the rich biblical background of shepherding and pasturing, numerous references to God the shepherd and the sheep of his pasture. 27 times the word shepherd appears in the New Testament, nearly always referring to Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep. He is the senior pastor. It's cumbersome to even suggest this, but technically we should all be titled under shepherds. I agree with uh, Tom Oden in his magnificent book, Pastoral Theology, that shepherding is the pivotal analogy for ministry because it links us to Christ. I, I despair for some of the modern understandings of ministry, even among evangelicals, which lean heavily towards leadership and management. Nothing wrong with either of those. I've played that part. But there has to be something that is organically linked to Jesus, the pastor. There is one shepherd, and we all serve under him. So this is how we're going to explore the theme. This afternoon, John 10, it's the pastor in the field. Tomorrow morning, John 11, it's the shepherd in the valley. And on Wednesday morning, John 21, it's the shepherd on the beach. And I want us to observe the shepherd at work. Um, I like the emphasis of Mark uh, chapter 3. You know, verses 3, uh, 13 and 14. Jesus called those he wanted, and he called those he wanted to be with him. Very simply, Jesus wants you. And he wants you to be with him. You come away from whatever you've left behind in order, rather like Jesus with the twelve, that you might be ministered to by Jesus. Now, John 10 has a number of contexts. There is the Old Testament context and supremely Ezekiel chapter 34. We're not going to look at it, but I, I believe, and many commentators do, that this has to be in Jesus' mind. Ezekiel 34 is the denunciation of the false shepherds, the shepherds who behaved as if the flock belonged to them. 
they exploited, they failed the people of God, they scattered the people, rendering them vulnerable. And it's the shepherds who've brought this misery on God's people. So the prophet Ezekiel says over the failure of the shepherds, God says, these are my sheep, and this is my flock, and therefore I will be the shepherd. I will raise up a good shepherd for my people. And so Jesus in John chapter 10 claims that he is the good shepherd promised long ago. And of course the New Testament writers saw this plainly. Jesus, Hebrew writer, is the great shepherd of the sheep who through the shedding of his blood is able to equip the flock to do everything good and perfect for his will. Paul warns the Ephesian elders, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Peter, he commissions the elders, be shepherds of the flock that is under your care. So you've got an Old Testament context, you've got a New Testament framework. But before we get into the depth of John 10, I want to ask you this question. Do you think it's strange that Jesus commences chapter 10 with a negative, the man who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate? but climbs in by some way, other way as a thief and a robber. And that's the immediate context. The immediate context is chapter 9. Chapter 9 is the, the man born blind, miraculously cured by Jesus. But how do the shepherds of the day react to the healing? Instead of a symphony of praise, there is a storm of protest. But the man who was once blind but now sees faithfully sticks to his script. This man, Jesus, opened my eyes. And if he was not from God, this wouldn't have happened. So what do the bad shepherds do? They throw him out. And what does the good shepherd do? Chapter 9, verse 35, he finds the lost sheep and brings him in. This is the context for chapter 10. The blind man represents the sheep with no shepherd. The Pharisees, the blind shepherds of Ezekiel 34. There's no break between chapters 9 and 10. The Pharisees are the thieves and the robbers of chapter 10, verse 1. One further warning, and that is that um, it's a very challenging passage and uh, rich with metaphors. And I think Carson and many commentators are right. We need to heed their warning. The message of John 10 must control the metaphors of John 10. And therefore, we must keep very simply to the general theme. Christ is the good shepherd, and he likened his church to a sheepfold. So there isn't that, what Carson calls, a, a formally coherent narrative. We're going to look at these uh, rich images and uh, let them pour uh, over our, our lives. So here's the, the first one, and it's in uh, verse uh, 14. The uh, shepherd has personal knowledge of the sheep. I am the good shepherd and my sheep know me. There is a close personal relationship between sheep and shepherd. It, it did occur to me there might be shepherds present. Please come up afterwards and enrich my understanding of this passage from your knowledge of shepherding. But just as the shepherd knows the sheep personally and has names for it, you know from John chapter 1 on, that Jesus, the pastor, has great knowledge of the sheep. He knows Simon well enough to know his name and change his name. He knows Samuel, Nathaniel. Nathaniel is staggered 
that Jesus should, should know so much about him. He knows the woman at the well. And his knowledge of the woman at the well, the lost sheep, is, is transforming for her and the community. Towards the end of the story, he knows what Simon's going to do. He knows what's happening in Simon's life. His knowledge is such that he can say, Simon, I know Satan has demanded to have you, sift you like wheat. And of course, Simon protests. It's a hollow protest. I'll even go to prison for you. Jesus, no. You'll have denied me three times before the cock crows. This shepherd has personal knowledge of the sheep because when he enters into personal relationship, then that knowledge accompanies him. And I believe the under-shepherds should reflect this in their own shepherding. I had a different, difficult pastoral uh, call a couple of Saturdays ago. I was asked to uh, meet a couple of guys on a Saturday morning for coffee. The circumstances don't matter except to say, I, um, as I set off, I was really lacking wisdom, knowing I was deep in this passage. As I drove there, I just said, Lord, this is your sheep. You know this man better than he knows himself. Please, as the under-shepherd, reveal to me something that will make this encounter meaningful. Give me the words, give me the heart. I don't need to know everything, but just give me something, a bridge into this man's life. And God answered that prayer. Gordon MacDonald says his daughter taught him the value of uh, lingering, hanging out when, with people when no one's in a hurry. See, if you're going to, to be a, a good under-shepherd and you're going to know the sheep, there has to be the ministry of lingering. Uh, I began my ministry in a village uh, in Leicestershire, not far from here, and uh, the local vicar had been there 25 years and he became a very... Dear friend, he and his wife didn't have any family, and we became, as a very young family, in their 20s, we became his family. And he said to me one day, he said, David, he says, you need to get out of the car more often and walk the streets of this village. He said, it'll take you longer, it'll slow you down, but it'll deepen your knowledge. I, um, I remember talking about lingering, um, I think many pastors in time economy feel it's a waste of time. And I remember in that first church, there was, there was a guy who was always lingering to talk to me on the door after a service, midweek or anywhere. And he only had two levels of conversation. One was um, uh, in, in the summer, it would be cricket. And in the winter, it would be football. And it never varied, whatever the service had been. And it was uh, always football and cricket. And I just longed for him to say, well, you know, do you think the council of Whitby made the right decision the way that it was? <laughs> Anything that would just break. I love football and I love cricket. Until one day I preached on Psalm 51. And he came out, he said, I've got to see you, not just this week. He said, I've got to see you first thing tomorrow morning. And he shared with me something his family Never knew. He took the secret to the grave. I'll take it to my grave as well. But if I hadn't entered that ministry of lingering, I doubt whether when Psalm 51 did open his heart, whether he'd have sought me out. There is the value 
of having that personal knowledge of the sheep. And when you lack knowledge, then the great pastor can share his knowledge with you. Here's the second thing, and that is that uh, the voice of the shepherd is important to the sheep. He calls his own sheep by name, and the sheep follow because they know his voice. I know friends, I've got two friends in my house group who are shepherds, and they confirm the truth. The sheep prick up their ears when the shepherd speaks his voice. That's why I think people were responsive to the ministry of Jesus. The common people heard him gladly because they heard in his voice the welcoming words and the authentic voice of the good shepherd. Have you ever pondered Isaiah 42, what the servant songs say about the voice of the shepherd? Behold my servant, my chosen one, he will not shout or cry or raise his voice in the streets. There is a gentleness in his ministry. A bruised reed he will not break. A smouldering wick he will not snuff out. There is a time to cleanse the temple with fierce denunciation, but not every Sunday. Remember one of my members, Diane, saying to me after a Sunday morning service, David, I understand your burning with a passion that this church should grab the vision of God, but you're beating us with legalism. Try some tender grace. I had the wrong tone of voice. Right message. An old uh, man and his wife were celebrating their 60th anniversary. And uh, they asked the old man in a television interview, what's the secret? How have you survived 60 years? Oh, he said, it's very simple. He said, we had an agreement early on that every time we felt a quarrel coming on, I would step out into the garden. And he said, I've mainly led an outdoor life. Gordon MacDonald was talking to a 93-year-old and his 90-year-old wife, and he asked them a similar question. How do you handle conflict? How do you treat each other when conflict comes on? And the old boy said this, it's important that I speak tenderly to my wife. Because when she was a girl, her father was always harsh and hurtful, with his tone of voice. And when she hears anyone speaking in a harsh voice, the feelings of hurt and shame return. And Gordon says, are you telling me she remembers after more than 80 years? And the old man replied, more than ever. The sheep need to hear God's voice in the voice of the undershirt. And that means that the pastor has to listen to the voice of the great shepherd. I think we have life verses and uh, we also have what we might call ministry verses. And a ministry verse, one of my favorite for pastors who preach, is Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 4. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary, he wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like one being taught. I'm an activist. I'm not as much of an activist as I used to be, but I'm still 
an activist. And therefore the Lord has always had to speak to me early in the day to get me. And I've discovered in recent years the immensely fruitful time of waking, sometimes very early, and things that I know he wants to add to what I've always prepared just comes into that ear. God has my ear morning by morning because I have to have my ear wakened like one being taught if I'm going to be the one who speaks. One of my oldest friends is Phil Greenslade. We went through theological studies together and I'm sure you know many of his books. He, he comments on this knowing the word that sustains the weary. The word that sustains the weary, he says, is not a verbal elastoplast, which by the hasty application of glib cliches attempts to heal the wounds lightly. The word means patient skill, profound biblical wisdom of reconnecting people to their defining story in the gospel. That doesn't come overnight. Listen to the person who listens to God. A.W. Tozer. Because if the person who listens to God is the person who stands up in the name of God, it's more likely this will be the voice of the Good Shepherd. Here's the third thing, and that is the, uh, the shepherd provides direction for the sheep. That's verse 4. He leads them out and goes on ahead of them. I once heard a pastor despairingly describe uh, this about his church. He said, I realize the way to lead my church is to find out which direction they're going in and then get in front of them. Uh, I'm not sure that's the way of the good shepherd. Mark chapter 10 and verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished. Jesus had to take them aside apparently and told them what was going to happen number of times we had a reading in a little prayer time before this afternoon, John 14, that the same puzzlement, we'll see it tomorrow. Oswald Chambers comments on this passage, the astonishment of the disciples. He says, there's an aspect of Jesus that chills the heart of the disciple. This face of Jesus set like a flint and his striding determination, here's the comment, he appears to be taken up with a point of view that I know nothing about. When I, uh, in leadership classes, speak on the commandments of leadership, one of them is that leaders have to learn to cope with mystery. Following Jesus as, as the pastor, the great shepherd, is not cut and dried and simple. Ask John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11. The man who's been so faithful all through his life, clearly pointing, is the one who says, ah, are you really the one Jesus who was to come? It's a, great, it's a great test of faith for leaders to discover which direction the Lord is going in, in their own lives, let alone the life of the church. And then with a holy boldness to step out and say, we believe, because it is leadership plural, we believe this is what the Lord is saying, however difficult a journey it is to make. Derek Tidborn, in his book Builders and Fools, has a whole chapter on shepherding and talks about the tough shepherding leading the sheep through the valley. In the valley, the shadows, he says, are real and frightening, 
The rocks hold potential enemies. In the valley, the sun never penetrates directly. It's cold. You have to confront your own fears in the valley. You'll have your personal questions in the valley. You need special grace in the valley. And it needs a depth of faith to know that you're journeying through the valley. The valley is a stage on the journey. It's not the terminus. And to lead a church through a valley experience. Any number of times, um, and perhaps when we have our interview this evening, some of this might come out. Our nature is to do everything to avoid going out ahead, leading into the valley. Lord, do I really have to take a lead on this? Couldn't this be solved by a few nights of, of prayer and fasting? Is it possible? I remember Joshua 7, because there was a particular few years ago now where I just felt we needed to be more prayerful. And the Lord led me to Joshua 7, where God says, stop the praying. A terrible thing has afflicted the camp, the sin of Achan. And you'll know Joshua is on his knees before the Lord. And the Lord comes and says, stop the praying, stand on your feet. This is time for action. I'll show you what to do. I uh, spend a lot of my time now uh, mentoring uh, pastors and accompanying churches. And I was uh, for three years journeying with a church and um, they faced a, a, a valley moment. And we met first of all to, when the news broke, um, to say, what are we going to do? It's a very complex story and I can't give it to you in detail. Uh, it involved marriage, um, it involved domestic abuse, possible criminal prosecution, uh, protection orders. And one of the most challenging things, as often happens, is people dividing into tribes within the church, uh, each wanting to lend their support. It was no time for leaders to go on sabbatical. And therefore, together, and there's great security and strength in together, together in prayer and by a very carefully manage process. Uh, we can't keep this secret from the church, but we can't tell the church everything. And they, they managed it wonderfully. It was a, a journey through a valley that probably, and it's still in the valley, it's probably going to take them um, two to two and a half years to come through that experience. And the important thing is leaders who are willing to step out and the shepherds have to be seen to be leading. They were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. The shepherd is always out, leading the flock out, out in front. It's the fourth thing, and that is the good shepherd is the gate. Uh, verses 7 to 9, but especially verse 9. Jesus said, I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. You must know the story of Billy Graham on a transatlantic flight and a, a drunken passenger was making a nuisance of himself and they were leading him down the aisle to a quieter place at the, at the back and as he goes past Billy's seat, he recognizes Billy. And in his slurred speech, he says, Billy Graham, I'm one of your converts. And Billy replied, well, you must be one of my converts because you are certainly not one of the Lord's, behaving as you are. Jesus is claiming that 
these are his sheep, and that he is the only way into the sheepfold. This means he is the sole means of entry. He is the sole means by which they enter the fold, the one source of spiritual nourishment, the one basis for the security of the flock. I am the gate. There's no swing gate in this picture because the shepherd was the gate. He alone exercises ultimate pastoral care over the flock. No one else has the right to manage the flock except those called to be under shepherds. He grants authority to pastors to be his shepherds. But under shepherds need to think, uh, remember they are his sheep and we're his shepherds. Pastors can never be proprietorial. They're not ours, they're his. Oswald Chambers has a perceptive warning. The servants of God in the Bible never stole hearts to themselves. They handed them over to God. Remember, it's not you who wakened the mighty desire in the heart of people for God. It's not you who called forth that spiritual longing that they should seek out Jesus. It's God working in you. I think one of the greatest privileges and it's not mine as often as it used to be, is to lead a discipleship class of new converts. I was willing to delegate most things in leadership, but not that. Uh, to prepare people for baptism and church membership. If I was doing it nowadays, it wouldn't be baptism and membership, it would be baptism and mission. Explore that another time. Because the gratitude they show you for being their spiritual midwife the fact that every time you preach, scales fall from their eyes. Every week you have a source of encouragement, if from nobody else you have it from new converts. The fact that they'll say to you, this is the family, your church, our church is the family I never had. And so very early on in the discipleship class, I had to say something like this to them. I, David, as your pastor, have the power to disappoint you and let you down. No, yes, give it six months. This church family has the capacity to disappoint you and let you down. No, yes, give it time. There is only one person, friend, who can confidently claim I will never leave you or forsake you, and that's the great shepherd, the gatekeeper. And like Bernie Finger, John the Baptist, you and I have to point to him and say he must increase and I must decrease. Yes, I am a significant human person in your life, but he is your pastor. I am simply the under-shepherd. Jesus is the gate, and whoever enters by him will be saved, and by his authority he will go in and out and find pasture. Look at the fifth thing, and that is that the uh, shepherd offers detailed care for the sheep on the way to this life of abundance. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Uh, the flock, both in the reality of shepherding, as I will demonstrate in a moment, as well as in spiritual shepherding, there has to be a vigilance on the part of the shepherd. Shepherd is always watchful over the sheep to make sure that they're going to be healthy and fat and leading the abundant life. 
and if they are to experience abundance, there will be unpleasant tasks to be performed. John Stott draws attention to this in his commentary on Acts 20:28. 20, Sheep are not always clean and cuddly. They're dirty animals and subject to pests. Regular dipping is needed in strong chemicals to rid them of ticks and lice and worms. They're un unintelligent, wayward, and obstinate. He hesitates to apply the metaphor too closely, but I, <laughs> but I think he's done a pretty good job so far. Some people, he adds, are a great trial to their pastor. And all God's people said, Amen. <laughs> I shared with my cousins, Trevor and Pat, and asked if uh, they agreed with John Stott. They're shepherds with a flock of Jacob's sheep uh, up in uh, Yorkshire. And they wrote back to me and said, um, if uh, sheep think the shepherd wants to do something unpleasant to them, such as regular treatment with chemicals, they know exactly how to make life as difficult as possible. I read um, over the last couple of weeks, I don't know where you've come across, it was one of the books of the year last year, The Shepherd's Life uh, by James um, Rebanks. Um, it's a tale of the Lake District and uh, shepherding in the fell. It's a brilliant book. You can read it in two or three settings, uh, sittings. And uh, he says this concerning what we're going to do now. A handful of ewes each summer have fly strike. Infestation of maggots, creeping, hungry. Vicious, they take hold in a soil patch of wool, then in the flesh or in a foot. We first know when a, he a ewe holds up a leg as if in pain, or twitches or is trying to bite her side, or simply gives up on the way home and lies down. A struck foot is sometimes a mass of wriggling maggots. A tail or patch on the wool is harder to spot, left untreated. They can kill, and they can clean a sheep to the bone in a month. Flies swarm around an affected sheep, the smell making them desperate. A horsefly leaves a red swollen velt, felt welt on the arm of the farmer. My grandfather, he says, took a struck ewe to one side and pours on battle's maggot oil. The maggots wriggle out, abandoning sheep, ship at the smell of the noxious stuff, and the floor becomes flecked with dead and dying maggots. Now, I do recommend you don't Google maggots in sheep. It's not a pretty sight. As the under-shepherd, you are called particularly to care for sheep who are maggot-infested. I was sharing uh, with one of the people I mentor regarding a very difficult situation in his church, and we felt drawn to... Galatians and chapter 5. The acts of the sinful nature are sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, drunkenness, orgies, etc. It's, it's really, you know, Sunday paper tabloid stuff. But buried in the heart of this sins of the flesh is hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy. And when we read that verse, he said that accurately describes the couple I'm thinking of. And because again I was deep in this passage, 
I said, well, in spiritual terms, this person has maggots. And it's no good just hoping that they would somehow go off to another church. What does that do? Just moving a sick sheep on puts another maggot-infested Christian in another fellowship that doesn't need that. And so in prayer, and we've taken pastoral action, we set out to say, before these maggots, and they were the maggots of bitterness and envy and things that went back years, this needs skillful treatment beyond both me and this young pastor, but we know a couple that can, because God has given them gifts in this area. And our prayer is that this sick sheep will be healed, so that the, the wounded parts and the poison that is destroyed would be located, and the healing streams would flow. I had, it came to me as I was preparing, I had a very gifted member of a team where I worked. Uh, if I, as leader of that team, um, was going through a tough personal time, this was the one person, I'm not saying nobody else cared, but invariably this one person would come and knock on my door and say, I think you need someone to pray with you. Uh, you know, every church has, has what I call the oral tradition, and this person was the oral tradition. Uh, they were in that team long before I arrived, and they were in that team long after I left, and they're no longer in the team because uh, teams do come to an end. But if there was one besetting failure, if there was a maggot and a cluster of maggots in this person's life, it was uncontrollable rage flying off the handle. Uh, people had left our team because they couldn't cope with it, and the rest of the team were accused of turning a blind eye. And there came one day when another episode had happened, and we couldn't just say, well, that's, that's the way that Charlie is, Monizu or me. We had to say, we've got to confront this, and we did. And again, we found somebody, because it's, it's so much more helpful sometimes to, to take a maggot-infested member and put them in the hands of a healer outside of the church. Someone who has no history with this particular person. And we put in there, we had to pay. But I'll tell you what, when six months of counseling had happened, he came knocking on my door one day, he said, I wish I'd gone through that years ago. Somebody deeply affected had been deeply blessed by healing. Why put a sick sheep to another shepherd for cleansing and healing? Ask the Lord for wisdom. Here's another one. Number six. The shepherd provides the nourishment for the sheep. That's verse 9. He leads them out to find pasture. A woman leader, friend of ours, Shayla, was a missionary living on the West Bank. And she said when she lived on the West Bank, um, out of her window uh, through four seasons, almost every day she saw a shepherd just leading, as you do in the Middle East, leading the sheep out. She said in the summer, uh, in the um, wintertime, um, there was green grass, as it were, not, I'm talking about springtime, uh, and, and green grass was there, so it was easy to see where the shepherd was leading. But there were times, she said, when at the height of summer, and all she could see from her window was brown, still faithfully 
the shepherd led the flock out because he knew where to find pasture. As I thought on that, I thought of many of us here feeding the flock in green pasture week by week through the four seasons. It's a challenging task. I don't know any pastor, any pastoral leader, male or female, who, who doesn't wilt. And you come here and you're just weary of giving out. A friend of mine who um, said to me a few months ago, I'm tired of my own voice. But leading people to green, green pasture is one of the tasks of the shepherd. And the point I want to make, and I want to do it with grace, so please don't feel this as a chastisement. I say it to my own heart. Practicing what we preach has to go hand in hand. One of the workshops is going to be on, on family, and I'm not sure whether that's on family in church family or human family, but a pastor had decided to do a, a series in Ephesians on husbands love your wives and parents don't. Be harsh with your children. And uh, he was deep into this series, and um, the children hadn't left, and his children normally sat down at the front with his wife, and one of the kids was really kicking off. And uh, there was a quiet moment early on in the service when the mother took the child by the wrist and led it down the aisle, and the child at the top of its voice cried out, Please pray for me. <laughs> which was a great accompaniment to family teaching from the Bible. When I was looking at Ezekiel 30, uh, 34, there's a verse uh, 18. I don't know whether you've seen this, but you can read it sometime. Can't you be satisfied to drink from the clear stream without muddying the water with your feet? Why do the rest of my sheep have to make do with grass that's trampled down and water that's been muddied. Apparently, it's possible to the, with the best will in the world to, to muddy the waters. And the best commentary I came across on this was from Gregory, Gregory the Great. Do you know his great book, Pastoral Care? Written in 590. And uh, it was a gift to Augustine of Canterbury. Gregory commissions him to bring the gospel to the pagan British and hands him this book on pastoral care, 597. And a few centuries later, uh, King Alfred, Alfred the Great, translates this pastoral care book into Old English because he knows there's such sound advice for pastors in this book. Sometimes we need to, we all need to dip into scripture, ransack scriptures for all that we need to, but also dip into history and find out what's happened before. Here's Gregory's comment on muddying the waters. Bad shepherds trample on what they've learned by the life they live. They hasten to teach what they've learned by study, but they belie in their conduct what they teach by words. They foul the water with their feet. The Sheep drink polluted water, be fouled by those feet. This is to my own heart. Lord, in green pastures, I want the word and life of this pastor to be in perfect harmony.
Abraham Heschel. What we need more than anything else is not textbooks, but text people. It's the life of the teacher the pupils read best. The life is the text they will never forget. My pastor was Herbert Ward. Jan and I regularly, as we look back, thank the Lord for Herbert. I can't honestly, apart from a very long Sunday evening series on Daniel, I can't remember much that my pastor taught us. But I'll tell you what, I can tell you lots of things about his life, which was lived following Jesus, which was lived living out Scripture. It was a gypsy smith who said there are five Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you. And sometimes the easiest Gospel to read is you. You are the living letter. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3. You are a letter from Christ. Not written on tablets of stone, but written on the heart. Lord, may I not muddy the waters. Give me grace to accept that word from you as the great shepherd. And then number seven, the shepherd must suffer for the blessings to flow. That's verse 11. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The task of any shepherd, a noble shepherd, is demanding, defending the flock from all dangers, and a, a, a noble shepherd will surely risk their life to defend the flock. But it is never the intention of a noble shepherd to die. It's only the good shepherd who lays down his life of his own accord. This is what makes him the great shepherd of the sheep. This is the deepest secret of a good shepherd. This love will lead him to sacrifice on Calvary. And when evil powers strike the sheep, uh, the shepherd and the sheep are scattered, note how the good shepherd still holds the initiative. I have the power to lay down my life. And all this happens under the authority of the Father. Look how many times in verses 14 to 18 we read, The Father knows me. I know the Father. My Father loves me. This command I receive from the Father. In the love and knowledge of the Father, the great shepherd has the power to lay down his life. Laying, off, laying down, incidentally, suggests the taking off of a garment. It's the laying aside of the garments of glory. Philippians 2, to be born in human likeness. It's the, it's the laying aside of garments to wash the feet of his disciples. It's laying aside his hands to the nails of Calvary. This is love and power controlled by the deepest self-denial. And the great shepherd has the power to take up his life again. Hebrews 13, so the God of peace through the blood of the eternal covenant brings back from the dead the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, with his power to equip under-shepherds like us with everything good for doing his will. The wonder of this sacrifice should make us realize the limits of our responsibility as under-shepherds. When you break bread at the table, remind your people Jesus is the great pastor. All of us are blood-bought sheep, including pastors. So in our moments of self-pity, when we say, pastoring the church, I spill my blood for that fellowship. I give my all for these people. When I think of the sacrifices I make for them, this is the language of self-pity. And it drives us astray. And when we're astray like the lost son, we say to the father, I have sinned and no longer worthy to be a pastor. 
One of those who mentored me in my younger days was Roy Hessian. He had grace conferences long before living leadership was uh, thought of, probably before you were born. And I said to you more than once, I believe that we are sons, children, and daughters, sons and daughters of that great movement that Roy was part of, fired by the East African revival. He said to me once, many things he said, but on this matter, most important, David, not simply to know the way in, Jesus is the gate, but the way back. Many, many believers don't know how to get back on the narrow way which they were once walking. And it's always the language of the lost son. I am not worthy. Treat me as a hired servant. I am not worthy. But the Lord will renew you in your calling. He renews us as under-shepherds and brings us to confess that he alone is the shepherd of the sheep who laid down his life. But if we don't lay our lives down in blood, that doesn't mean to say we don't share in the hazards of shepherding. You've noticed, haven't you, in these verses that it's conflict that always reveals the true heart of the shepherd. What happens when wolves attack the flock? The hireling flees. The hireling shows he hasn't really got, or she, the heart of a shepherd. A true shepherd stays, and uh, we sometimes have to recognize the hazards of shepherding, the fellowship of his sufferings. Uh, I talked about life verses and 2 Corinthians 4. I have to say, verse 7 has always been a great life verse for me. We have the treasure in the jar of clay. Here's a little jar. Uh, not much more than 50 p's worth, uh, actually purchased in Jericho uh, about 18 months to two years ago. Uh, inside, and I assure you it is a replica, it's a replica of my grandma's 1,000 pounds worth earring. So it's a replica. It's not really grandma's. Could I trust that to a living leadership conference? No. But if I put this valuable earring inside this 50p jar and I drop it from the roof outside, which is going to smash first? And when you read this amazing verse, that he's put this treasure in a vulnerable jar of clay, the unbreakable treasure, the death and resurrection life of Jesus buried in my vulnerable life. And I get so frustrated, all of us do. Why are we called wounded healers? Because we are just patched up pastors. We're fragile. We easily go to pieces. We lose heart over circumstances. The strongest woman or man in this room will know anxiety, terror, sadness, grief. We crumble emotionally and go to pieces. Why has God made us like this? Did a missionary conference years ago in Africa with a group of uh, MAF pilots and other missionaries. And they had a, uh, a top gun. He wasn't really top gun, but you know what I mean. Senior pilot among the MAF pilots. And everybody looked up to him. Skilled navigator, aviator, and amazing knowledge of scripture. And, but when he revealed his vulnerability to that group, things that, things that they had not seen before in him, my word, what a revelation. But of course, we're all vulnerable. 
And verse 7 tells you why. The importance is that the all-surpassing extraordinary power is seen to be from God and not from us. That means that there's no escaping the times when you will feel abandoned, physically and emotionally beaten, absolutely perplexed, hard-pressed. But read those verses and understand this. Phil Green state, what else can clay pot stewards of the treasure do than interpret their weakness not as physical, moral, or mental frailty, but as simple, vulnerable dependence on God's grace? That's how you're going to go back. I've known people to draft resignation letters before coming to a conference like this. I might talk something about resignation this evening. Never, ever resigned on the principle of vulnerability. It's a principle of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. He is the Savior who shed his blood, but, but we share in the hazards of shepherding, and we accept our responsibility to be vulnerable and dependent. Here's the final thing, and the final thing is uh, the shepherd has a vision for bringing in other sheep to the flock. That's verse 16. I have other sheep, not of this sheep pen. I must bring them in. They too will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Uh, the majority of commentators agree in bringing in the other sheep refers to uh, Gentiles, not other faith traditions. And it's mentioned here in close reference to the death of Jesus, because it's only by his death that Gentiles will gain access to the sheepfold. And the mission to the Gentiles, that's us, will happen after his death and resurrection and the outpoured gift of the Spirit at Pentecost. But notice, although it's us that carry it out, the emphasis is on, I must bring them in. That means the ascended Lord, the pastor, the great shepherd, he will be involved post-Pentecost in the mission. And of course there will be one flock, Jews and Gentiles, one flock as wide as the world, out of every tribe and nation and culture. And I must bring them in. It's plain that the ascended Lord is going to be involved in this mission. So if it's his priority, it should be the priority of the under-shepherds as well. Another pastor I was talking to asked me a question. And uh, he said, David, how... What do you do when the good is the enemy of the best? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, he said, everything we do in our church is, is good and it's even great. Have a regular flow of contacts, uh, uh, of converts and uh, brilliant small groups that disciple and uh, great leadership structure and Bible teaching and this is good, but... The Lord had placed on his heart a deep, deep burden for the lost of this town. And he just knew that things were so good and great that people were saying, well, why do we need to change? What happens when the good is the enemy of the best? And what happens if the, the one who says, I must bring them in and I'm leading this mission, what happens if we don't hear that voice? Now, just remind you of the context in which we meet this evening, an increasingly cold climate 
for Christian believers. An arrogant and bold atheism, more people now in census surveys are quite prepared to come out. The religion is no religion. An everlasting battle which we're losing between political correctness enshrined in law and Christian conscience, Irish bakers. Attacks on RE in school and chaplains and where are we going in all this? Well, friends, this is the context for mission. And we may have to be a very different kind of church if we're going to be led by the shepherd in bringing in other sheep. Alan Roxburgh's phrase struck me a few years ago when I read it, the gown of the pastor must be replaced with the shoes of the apostle. I give you four things. It's a, a talk on its own, but these are just four headings. Our task, if we're going to wear the shoes of the apostle in the pulpit, is to convince the people of God that they were sent people. We have to accompany the good shepherd as he seeks and saves the lost, because whenever we arrive, he's there before us. Secondly, we refuse to domesticate the gospel. So when people give you the impression, you're our chaplain, you reply, no, no, I'm your missionary. And in fact, you are missionaries with me. I remember reading how a church had actually decided to put in stone over the entrance porch to the church as they left. You are now entering the mission field. Your mission field is one step away. Training members for a worldly discipleship. People need to be taught Bible knowledge, how to pray, how to lead. And we'll do that here. But above all, they need to be taught how to be spiritually subversive in the workplace. Ever more so. Talk to any HR person. You may be an HR person here. And God bless those who have to negotiate their way to the increasing amount of laws that are coming our way that challenge the Christian living their lives in the workplace. Preaching that is prophetic, dangerous, demanding, dangerous sometimes, exposing publicly the powers, showing how these idols have clay feet. If we're serious about what Jesus says as the great shepherd, I want to bring in other sheep. There's a huge amount of work to be done there. And you say to me, well, who's sufficient for all these things? Friends, we are. We are. The reward to faithful pastors is one day the unfading crown of glory from the great shepherd of the sheep. But so long as we remember we are under shepherds, we do everything under his command, his control, his direction. We will survive. A friend of mine, Bishop Alex, who was in charge of a refugee camp in Rwanda at the height of all that was happening there, it was terrible, the civil war. Every day, hundreds of people arriving in this camp, well-organized, well-ordered. One day he got up and looked out over all this teeming mass of humanity and said, Lord, I can't go on serving you here anymore. And he heard the Lord whispering in his ear, Alex, I'm not asking you to be the saviour of the world. I'm simply asking you to see what I'm doing and asking you to get involved in that, and that will be sufficient. Before you go to bed tonight, I'd love you to uh, read Psalm 23 
and personalize it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let Jesus, the pastor, pastor you. Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything we've discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on any major social media application at Living Leaders or you can visit our website www.livingleadership.org where you'll find even more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. Blessings.